You're listening to Homicide Worldwide. Your hosts, Sally and Keto, would like to remind our listeners the episodes deal with crimes that are graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Homicide Worldwide listeners, all of us over here at Homicide Worldwide Podcast would like to thank you for coming back each week. We see that you are spreading the word and that our body count is growing. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're kind of on Facebook. If you have an idea for an episode, send us an email to homicideworldwidepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join our moms in supporting the show, check out our Patreon. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen and please leave a five-star review. It really helps out the show. For source material, don't forget to check out the show notes. handful of traits in the human condition which can be regularly relied on. The one surefire thing that we are dependable in is our hubris around knowing when we are in grave danger. We just don't ever think that it will be us who gets murdered by the normal fellow from the bar who we made light conversation with, who we gave our number to, or who we went home with. Danger isn't always that bad boy who picks you up on a motorcycle or in a bitchin' Camaro. Sometimes danger can be quite disarming in the form of an articulate, bland person who doesn't draw attention who, because of their ordinariness, makes another person feel safe. Like sensible footwear with good arch support instead of a stiletto. The term stranger danger, that we mostly reserve to teach children about the bad people of this world, lends itself to tonight's case in the most horrifying of ways. The unfortunate men who Dennis Nielsen murdered trusted that he was harmless. They went home with him and assumed that when they left his house that it would be in the live form, but he had much different ideas. If only we could be as good at paying attention to the subtleties, these little tells that seem to only ever show themselves so clearly in hindsight. It might just be the very thing that helps us save our own skin. Dennis Nielsen was Dahmer before Dahmer was Dahmer. They were both everyday monsters, each a bland man reeking of mediocrity, wearing non-threatening glasses and a dress code which mainly included a variety of beige brown and beige neutral and beige tan disarming, harmless, and deadly. Please note that tonight's episode discusses crimes against gay men. However, we cannot say with certainty that all of the victims were gay, as some of them have never been identified, or we do not know the details around their encounters with Dennis Nielsen. Sally and I will do our very best to be clear and mindful when we are telling the victims' stories tonight, and we will ensure that we stay respectful at all times. This is episode 46 of Homicide Worldwide.
Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Nice to see you. How are you doing this evening? It's lovely to see you. I am well. How about yourself? Pretty damn good. I had a lot of wins this week. That's, I mean, who could be mad at that? I'm certainly not mad at it. After the universe really putting its back into the Sally Ball kicking, I really feel like the karma is coming in the other direction now. Like I'm kind of cashing it in good stuff. The universe also has put its back into the key to ball kicking at times. And, and it's nice to kind of feel like when you're on an upswing. You know, I feel like your tropical island that you're going to somehow acquire is going to pay back karmically. I mean, you've banked a lot, Kita. You haven't just banked like a nice car. Yeah. Or like, you know, a, a lengthy elderly twilight years. I mean, (laughs) island, man. I'm hoping for an actual physical island at some point. You can only arrive by boat and if I tell you my address. And there's mines in the water. So if you're not an authorized boat arriver, well, it's a bloomy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to send you into pink mist. Oh yeah. Total body disruption. (laughs) That's the way. That'll dissuade anybody from getting their feet on the island. (laughs) They're like, ooh, I like her, but I don't know if I really want to go to the new house. I mean, I'm real big on the not stopping by without an invite. So don't do it. Don't just don't do it. Just a stopper buyer is not, not, no. Uh Call me. Like if you're in the area, sure. And like you want to get together, but don't just swing on by and knock, knock. Hey, I'm here. And then I'm like, oh fuck, I'm naked. Yeah. Or I'm doing my eyebrows (laughs) or my pubes or something. Something terrible. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, listener, we're (laughs) glad that you dropped by this evening. Yeah. You don't need an invitation. No, you're always welcome here. Oh yeah. You can come in the back door if you know what I mean. Ew. Oh, Sally. Ew. That was not what I thought it was. Or was it? Oh, was it? In any case, um, I am Sally. I'm one of your co-hosts. And I am Kita. I am your other co-host. And here we are on our little podcast called Homicide Worldwide, where we explore all manner of things murdery. Tonight's murder takes us to Ye Bonnie, England, to the case of Dennis Nilsson. Oh, Dennis. Oh, Dennis Nilsson. Now, if you haven't heard of Dennis Nilsson, you've probably heard of Jeffrey Dahmer. As Kita said in her intro, Nilsson was Dahmer before Dahmer was Dahmer. And I think that's a really good point because Dahmer gets all the media adulation and the he's all so fancy. And mm. Dennis over here in fancy. the corner. So fancy. Dahmer, fancy. It's like word association. Right. When I think about Jeffrey Dahmer and his many crimes, the first word that comes to mind. Fancy. Yeah. Fancy. Yeah. Dazzling. <gasps> yeah. But, you know, they had so many similarities, but yet Dahmer gets, you know, all of the adulation. And part of that is because how different countries give access to their various criminals. And of course, America has a much greater appetite for crime and serial killing. I mean, that's yeah. why this podcast exists. We're bloodthirsty savages. We want more. There we are. Every American just perked up. Their blood runs red. I love it. <laughs> These colors don't run. <laughs> they don't run. <laughs> Unless you're in Dennis Nilsson's house. Oof. So we're going to go to England where we're going to explore the life and times and crimes of one Dennis Nilsson. Dennis Nilsson is not known for the brutality of his murders. Some murderers revel in the act of murder itself, and it doesn't seem like that was necessarily his jam. No, I don't think that that was his jam. His jam was more what happened after the murder, and boy, did things happen after the murder. Many things, many awful, terrible, horrifying things happened post-mortem. Post-mortem, it was quite awful. So the best place to start with this is how the public found out about these murders that happened in England 
in the early 80s and late 70s. In the winter of 1983, it was pretty early in the year, and there was a house in London that Dennis Nilsson was living in. And at that time, the drains started to clog. This was a house that he shared. It was a very large, beautiful, older looking house. And he shared it with other people. It was kind of broken up into separate apartments. His apartment was on an upper floor. People in the lower floors had started to notice that their drains were blocked and their toilets were backing up and general plumbing problems. And so as you do, the owners of the house called a plumber and the plumber came, took a look. And noticed that indeed there was some weird stuff there and it was an absolutely horrible smell. They tried to remove things from the drain and it did get removed and the water started to flow, but they were called back a couple of days later. At that point, the technician really did notice that there seemed to be things that looked like pieces of people stuck in the drain. This was actually noted to Dennis by someone else who had been aware of this plumbing incident. And he you know, observed that it was, that's a terrible thing. And then the very next day when people came back to look a bit more closely, there was almost nothing left of that mass of human bits. But there was enough that little pieces were taken, given to the police for analysis. And sure enough, it was determined to be human remains. People meat. Remember people, we are just made of meat. Fancy meat. <laughs> yeah, that plumber probably did not anticipate that when he woke up that morning and went to nope. work. Nope, nope, you don't. Like, oh, it's going to be another shitty day. Yep, with people in the drain. Thank you. Yeah. No. Didn't really no. think it was going to be with people in a drain. No. And as a plumber, I think you probably see some of the grosser things because, I mean, that's what comes out of people and you're kind of dealing with the pipes that carry away the things that come out of people. And <laughs> I mean, I'm a person, I know what comes out of people and you know, they've seen a lot. They've seen a lot. <laughs> I'm without words right now. And I don't think we really need to go into too much detail about what we're talking about here, but you also probably know what's gone down your pipes, dear listeners. So yeah, this plumber did not have a great day. Really not. This discovery of, you know, confirmed human remains that had been attempted to be flushed down the toilet system, the sewage system of this building. They started to kind of track where it came from in the building and they realized pretty soon that it was coming from this upper apartment. One of the investigators went up and knocked on the door and a tall gangly man answered and was questioned. He initially denied that he knew anything about this and said, oh, this is terrible. People's remains were found. How awful. Really, Academy Award for Best Actor goes to slow clap Dennis Nilsson. But then after a very little pressuring, basically just almost an eyebrow raise of pressuring, he gave it all up and just said, you know, there's some plastic bags uh, in the other room. And the detective went and looked and sure enough, there were large garbage bags that were filled with the dismembered remains of young men. Obviously, he was immediately arrested. Because, you know, when you've got garbage bags of dismembered remains in your house, you probably didn't come by them by honest means. Well, yeah, you didn't just pick that up off the street and then take it up to your apartment. Yeah, you can't get it at Costco. No, you can't. I mean, you can get everything else. I mean, yet. But no, I mean, you might. You might. Maybe they'll have a people meet section someday. 
I think there'll be like a post-apocalypse Costco where you can probably, there's probably going to be a people meet section along with like the crickets section. Ooh, what would we call that? And the non, non-radioactive water section. <laughs> Non-radioactive. Is there such thing left on this planet? Uh, I'm not even sure if there is. Yeah, I don't know. And so from there, the investigation continued. On the way to the police station, Dennis Nilsson more or less admitted that he had killed not just several people as the police initially suspected, but around 15 or thereabouts. So from there, we're going to take a step back and start with the childhood of Dennis Nelson. Now that you have a kind of a little overview of what he was known for. (laughs) They're like, we've just learned everything we need to know about Dennis. But you haven't heard yet about the necrophilia and the dismemberment. The listeners love it when we sing. I'm looking into one of our listeners' eyes as we sing, and she knows who she is. Exactly. She yeah. does know who she is. Yeah. So let's start with a little bit of the early years, because when you have somebody like this who kills many people, who keeps their bodies around, who washes and dresses them, who has sex with them, who keeps them in bed, Ew. who, oh, yeah, we're just getting started, who props them up in a chair and watches TV with them, convos with them. Yeah. How was your day? Mine was pretty good. What did you do? You just hung around the house? Yeah. Why, why are you so quiet tonight? Yeah. You're, you're kind of right where I left you. Yeah. Cat got your tongue? Yeah. Why aren't you? I mean, you're not really doing much around the house. It's like I do it all. So you're just going to keep saying nothing? All right. That tells me all I need to know. Strong, silent type? Strong, silent, dead type. <laughs> That's really Dennis Nilsson's type. The dead has to be in there somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's a requirement. That's right. It yeah. is a requirement. But like you start out alive, but then you end up dead. You start out alive, but you're not going to leave alive. Yeah. And you're not going to leave peacefully. You're going to leave in pieces. There you go. You know, if you want to think about why Dennis Nielsen did these things, you do have to go back, 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 back. It's just like you always do with these people. You don't wake up, you know, in your 20s and decide that you want to kill people and keep them in your bed. (laughs) You what? I'm kidding. I said I did. You know, I did. I want to <laughs> talk about it. It's kind of private. I probably shouldn't have brought it up because it's illegal. We're not recording, are we? But no, we're going to start a little bit further back and see if we can kind of find the origins of this very unusual behavior. And there are several places mm-hmm. in Dennis Nilsson's childhood where we can say, oh, formative moment. Yeah, there's a few of them. Let's start where we always start on the day, the blessed day of Dennis Nielsen's birth, November 23rd, 1945. And in fact, you know, this episode is coming out just like, a, I don't know, a few days before his birthday. Happy birthday, Dennis. Serendipitous. Happy, happy birthday, Dennis. This is dedicated to you. So he was born in Fraserburgh, Scotland. And he was also known as the Muswell Hill murderer and the kindly killer doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. And his parents were Olav Magnus Mokshim. He was a Norwegian soldier and he had traveled to Scotland in 1940 to be part of the Free Norwegian Forces. Now, I don't know much about Olav, but yeah. I can guess that he was not a pussy. <laughs> I don't think he was. No, I think he was most likely pretty like he probably sacked up pretty good. He seemed like kind of a badass. Yeah, but it was following the German occupation of Norway. So he pretty much seemed like a really hard man. 
He drank a lot during his kids' childhoods. He kind of just seemed like a no bullshit kind of guy. So as we get into Dennis Nielsen's adulthood and as he became aware of his own sexuality as being a gay man, I can't really imagine that Olaf would have understood anything about Dennis, but that's okay because he didn't stick around in Dennis's life. The timing too of those three children, Dennis and his older brother and his younger sister is interesting if you look again at World War II history. So mm-hmm. like 1939 to 1945 is World War II. The older brother's born in 1943. So two years before the end of the war. Dennis is born right after the end of the war. So the, or, the war finished in, I think, like August. So this is November. So like three months, three, four months after the end of World War II. Still a lot of turmoil. And then his younger sister is born just two years after that. So it's at a time where there's, you know, a lot of privation, a lot of turmoil, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety in the world, a lot of PTSD, all those things. And did you notice that I said his last name was Mokshim? Mm-hmm. Because he ended up adopting the name Nielsen. And so that was actually not his actual surname. So Dennis's mother was Elizabeth Duthie White, known as Betty. She was a factory worker in Scotland. Betty White was his mom. You know, I, I had to laugh when I saw that myself. If he had actually had the proper Betty White as his mom, this never would have happened. This never would have happened because she's a pretty badass lady. Either which way, Olav and Betty married in May of 1942 after a very brief courtship. But, you know, she wasn't pregnant. So it was just a, you know, shotgun kind of wedding. They just got married. They were hot for each other. They probably wanted to get down. Mm -hmm. And he was like, let's get married. She was like, all right. And so they did. Who could have seen it coming? Right, exactly. So, yeah, like you said, they had three kids, Olaf Jr. in 1943, Dennis in 1945, and youngest sister, Sylvia, who was born in 1947. And these uh, two children, uh, Dennis and Sylvia, those two younger ones, at the time, there was some question about who the actual dad was. Yeah, I mean. Which is a big deal at that time. She was considered quite popular. In those days. Quite popular. You mean in sort of like the village bike way? I mean, you know, Olaf was gone a lot and I don't think that she was terribly alone. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that she was terribly <laughs> alone. You should be a diplomat. You have a natural <laughs> talent for it. I'm not even kidding. If you, say, if you say absolutely everything that needs to be said without saying a word, that's a true gift. Either which way, marriage was falling apart by 1945, but That's when Dennis was born. And they stuck it out for like at least another couple of years um, until, you know, 1948, when they both kind of just threw in the towel and said, fuck it. Pretty much in 1945, Betty and Olaf were kind of like not openly seeing other people, but they were both kind of like, all right, well, you're going to go your way. I'm going to go my way. Mm -hmm. But then, like you said, the two youngest children, Dennis and Sylvia, were considered to be, quote unquote, bastards which was the term labeled to a child who was illegitimate at the time, which is a really dated and horrible thing to say about somebody. It's a horrible thing to say. Unless you're calling somebody a bastard because they cut you off in traffic, in which case, totally different connotation. Yeah, and absolutely justified because that guy had it coming. (laughs) Exactly. But the two younger kids were definitely not treated the same as uh, Olaf Jr., who they did believe to be Olaf Sr.'s biological child. So Olaf Sr. ended up divorcing Betty 
And he went on. There's not really a lot about him out there because, like I said, he really didn't stick around. He was definitely that guy. Like, he bounced. Mm -hmm. So he divorced Betty's trifling ass, and he went on to marry three more times before dying in 1973. Yeah. Playa. Playa. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. Elizabeth Taylor, but without the money or the class. <laughs> but, but Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, they didn't really maintain any kind of, from what I could tell, there wasn't any kind of child support. There wasn't any kind of visitation. And when Olaf bounced, the only male figure who was left in Dennis's life was his maternal grandfather, who Betty's parents were like not really down with this marriage to begin with. They definitely felt like they didn't really care for their son-in-law. Yeah. They thought he drank too much and, you know, he obviously wasn't really around. They really were sort of like glad when the divorce happened. And they, for the time, I thought this was really an interesting perspective because, you know, we're talking about the forties here when divorce was still sort of not widely common like it is yeah. now yeah. or was when we were growing up this was still a time when people just gutted it out and suffered until they died Mm -hmm. together because they made a commitment (laughs) together in misery together. We shall make each other miserable and die till death do us fricking part. (laughs) Exactly. So the kids and Betty stayed with the parents and his grandfather was pretty much the only person that he, and I heard this term so much when I was researching this case, the only person that he had a quote unquote tactile relationship with. This is very interesting because he hated to be touched. His mother talked about that he did not like to cuddle. He did not receive comfort physically. And it actually kind of repelled him even from a very young age, Mm -hmm. except with his grandfather that, that he would like ride on his grandfather's shoulders as they went on these like long walks across the rolling like Scottish hills and on the beach and up the cliffs and all these very windswept Scottish places. It actually sounds like a really kind of cool thing to mm-hmm. you know, take these like long walks with your grandfather and talk about, you know, just be in Scotland. I mean, just be in freaking Scotland. Ugh. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Can I be there now? Please. Um, I mean, I don't live in hell. This is a beautiful part of America, but like it's Scotland, right? So Grandpa was kind of a really interesting relationship. It was clear mm-hmm. that was a huge developmental, you know, role in his life that his his grandfather played a huge role as he was growing up. From Nilsson's uh, autobiography, History of a Drowning Boy, there are allegations from Nilsson that his grandfather molested him. Big, heavy allegations. And this was the only part of the research where I heard that mm-hmm. where as like most of the things that I found there wasn't a lot that pointed to child molestation it was all about how his grandfather was like his light in this world and I thought that that was a really interesting discrepancy between everything else that I had heard until I heard that portion of the audiobook the history of a drowning boy it was the only time I heard any allegation of molestation. I'm not saying it's not true or that it is true, but that is really interesting that that was the only time that I noticed it. 
I wonder to what extent it is true. You know, I like to believe victims in it as a general rule. However, we've got the Casey Anthony's of the world. Yeah. You know, like, oh, my father molested me when we know it's not true. Exactly. And we've got the, you know, Jody Arias's of the world. Oh, you know, Travis was looking at pictures of children yeah. and masturbating to them. And we know that's not true. Right. People have not a tendency, but it does crop up from time to time. These allegations, because they're sort of almost too heinous to attack that it is used as a way to sort of um, absolve yourself somewhat of responsibility. Well, this was done to me. Look how heinous it is. Certainly nobody's going to question it. Right. Casey Anthony certainly tried that. And who's to say whether it's true or not? The only person who knows for sure is Dennis Nilsson and his grandfather. And they're both dead. You know, it's interesting that in the book, when he goes into detail about the alleged molestation, like you said, you know, he talked about his grandfather giving him the quote unquote tea. The tea would make him tired, he said. And this would kind of always end up with some kind of sexual exchange between he and his Mm. grandfather. But he says his belief is that his troubles as an adult can be pinpointed to the, not because of the molestation, but seeing his grandfather's dead corpse after he passed away. Oh, this story. Yeah. So his grandfather passed away when he was 62 years old while he was out at sea. Kind of like the backwards Viking funeral that I've asked for. Mm -hmm. It's like coming back onto land. He was brought from the sea to the land. Mm -hmm. Like reverse evolution. Yeah, exactly. It was really Mm -hmm. backwards. And so... When his grandfather passed away, Dennis was told that his grandfather was just asleep and that he was in a better place. Ultimately was shown his grandfather's corpse, which was in the house in the very room where Dennis Nielsen had been born. Oh, wow. The circle is now complete. Good job, Betty. Right. You know, great execution, Betty. Mm -hmm. And so... That is where he feels like he somehow went off the rails. Like it was a really influential moment. It was like kind of just transformed into like a fascination with death, like kind of just linking the two. You know, the way that Betty goes about it, first of all, I mean, how to screw up your child 101. Yeah. Like, do you want to see your grandfather? Yeah, of course I do. I do. Of course I want to see my grandfather. I love my grandfather. It's good to hang out with him. You know, at this point, this is before the allegations of molestation cropped up. This is his story, right? Exactly. This is a child's perspective, right? Right. Of course, I'd love to see my grandfather. So she takes him to see his grandfather in this room, right? The curtains are drawn and there's this box on the table and she walks him over. He does not know at this point that his grandfather has died. Right. No, he's told he's asleep. And so he looks in the coffin and he sees his grandfather. And there's a couple of things hit him right away. The chalky white of his face. So if you've been to a funeral and you're like, well, they weren't chalky white when I looked at them at the funeral of my uncle, that's because your uncle's (laughs) face was covered in makeup. So Andrew White doesn't strike me as the makeup on the face kind of corpse type. Probably not. Either. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is after you die, gravity sets in as gravity is wont to do. And your blood drains to the back of your body. Mm-hmm. And therefore your skin without blood in it is quite white. And not just like white people white, but like paper white. Like Casper. Like Casper, the friendly ghost. So this was his first experience seeing not only a dead person, but you know, obviously his grandfather as the dead person, his first dead person. And yeah. the, the whiteness of the face and the stillness of the body really hit him. 
And something about that and his love for his grandfather and the appearance of deathly whiteness and stillness with love, it, it all just got sort of cuisinarded in the brain of wee little baby Dennis. Yeah, it was definitely not the best move on Betty's part to show no. little Dennis his dead grandfather. And then saying, you know, he's in a better place. It's like, why didn't he take me with him to this better place? Yeah, I mean, it, she essentially shoved his face into the corpse of his grandfather to teach him about death. Right, the most important relationship of his life. Yes. Like more important to him than his father and definitely more important to him than his mother. Yeah. Literally the most important human connection in his life. And now he's dead. And now you're seeing his dead corpse for the first time. Yeah. All bad. So after that happened, Betty was sort of on her own. She had, there were a couple of other women in the house that she lived in. Dennis was brought up in a house full of very like strong-willed independent women, especially at that time, I would think that the independent woman of the 40s would have to be a lot tougher than the independent woman of today. I would imagine that's true. Yeah. In the sense of women weren't really in the workforce yet. They were a lot more discriminated against. Mm -hmm. A lot more disparaged. Yep. And you probably had to really work about 10,000 times harder to get a job. And so I would imagine that the mentality of a single woman, especially one with three children, was pretty fucking tough. And so she seemed like she was pretty dominating toward Dennis. And when she met her future husband, Adam... She was also pretty dominating with him as well. Uh, Dennis actually described him, (laughs) this man, Adam Scott, as a quote, (laughs) I love this quote, by the way, a quote, semi-literate, even-tempered council worker, a good, simple man, but had no artistic finesse. Not everybody shares your rare artistic genius, Dennis. No, but I will say in the book, if he really wrote it, I thought it was very well written. He is exceptionally articulate. I enjoyed the structure of everything. I was like, I could listen to this for a while, even though he's describing terrible things. Like, I love the writing. It's really, that's such a pain to say. He's a really good speaker. He's a really good writer. It was really, yeah. He has a, a really, he had a really immense vocabulary and he knew how to use it. He had a very kind of clear mental structure. One thing I will say before we wrap up with the grandfather I had mentioned something about the tea and you did as well. Mm -hmm. Dennis in his book describes an instance in school where he could not hold his Mm. bowels after one of his trips with his grandfather. And he had a big blowout, big shitting of his pants. Was the implication there that because there was molestation sort of on the back end? Yes. Uh, Wow. Wow. And so as a result of that trauma, in addition to, you know, really just, I mean, how embarrassing to like crap yourself at school. It really is. We've all been there. I haven't. Knock on wood. I that actually, I'm, I will like, you know what? I will say it has not happened to me, thankfully. Your time is coming. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. You're going to sneeze one day after you've had a burrito and you really have to go. <laughs> That's why I don't eat burritos before I work. This is really smart. So he couldn't, you know, hold on to his bowel. And so after this happened, a lot of the kids who witnessed this 
really mocked him over it, as children do, because children are little assholes. And of course, this was incredibly embarrassing to him. And so this was like a big shame Mm -hmm. that he remembers as being a child and that being associated with his grandfather who allegedly molested him. He has a lot of strong memories about shameful moments in his life. Yeah, he does. And those really, I mean, for, for all of us, obviously, those moments stick out more than anything. But for Dennis Nielsen, like when you listen to him talk, his worldview is very negative and pessimistic. Oh, yeah. He always looks on the negative side about how he's being screwed, how things are not working out, how people are failing or being stupid, how that situation could be better, how that could have been done better or look better or be prettier. There's always some fault with everything around him. So this relationship with his grandfather really was one of the keystone relationships of his life. And again, that experience of his grandfather's death, seeing his grandfather's body, it really did create this indelible link between love and death, especially the appearance of a dead body. And that would inform his sexuality and his sexual preferences as he grew older. As he did grow older and and became an adolescent, as adolescents do, well, your hormones come online and you learn more about what you're attracted to and who you're attracted to. And uh, he became aware that he was attracted to men. Mm -hmm. Not a good time in the history. I mean, not the worst time in history, but not a great time in history to be a gay man. At that time in Scotland, it was illegal to be gay, you know, to do homosexual acts. You could be in prison for it. Yeah, it was considered criminal activity, which is not our viewpoint, by the way. Oh, of course not. Jesus, God, no. And so we were letting you know that yeah. right off the bat. But like, And every time um, we talk about this, it's never our viewpoint, but... No, but we have to say it, <laughs> not even just from a criminal perspective, but even in the wider society, like, you know, his brother would harass him for being effeminate. Yeah, called him names. Called him names like hen, which meant girl in the dialect of Scotland at the time. You know, he wasn't a blokey dude and his older brother was a blokey dude and his dad was a blokey dude. So he kind of stood out from the family Yeah, and he spent a lot of time with his sister in that regard. Mm -hmm. It turns out that he may have done a little experimentation with his sister in his adolescent years. Um, When he first discovered that he was gay around sort of his early teens, he was confused. He was ashamed again, because we said it was criminal at the time. He once apparently fondled his sister, Sylvia, and that's not great. Just (laughs) across the board. Don't do that. Don't do that. And he thought he might be bisexual because a lot of the boys that he was attracted to, he thought that they kind of looked like her, that they resembled her. Yeah, that there was a like a facial resemblance, like a bone structure resemblance. And even prior to his teens, when he changed schools after his mom was remarried, there were several boys that he really kind of crushed on. There was one in particular who said he described himself as having become obsessed with and that he thought that the boy was beautiful. But he never spoke to him and he didn't know his name. And so 1954, right? So he's nine years old. He knew that these feelings were not something that he could be expressive with. So all of this started then and then it was repressed. And then as a teenager, it was even more repressed. It turns out that Dennis Nilsson, in terms of his sexual preferences, can be defined as an ephibophiliac. What is that? 
Ephibophilia is the primary sexual interest in specifically mid to late adolescents, ages 15 to 19. Oh. So it's not pedophilia, which is, you know, ped is child. So, you know, attract sexual attraction to children, which obviously is foul and awful. It's the the sexual interest in that mid to late adolescent kind of gangly teen group. So 15 to 19. So he was absolutely defined in later years by, you know, psychiatrists and that sort of thing as an ephibophiliac. Interesting. I've never heard of that word before in my life. Neither had I. Yeah. Reading Rainbow. Oh, in addition to allegedly fondling Sylvia, mm. he apparently, allegedly fondled his brother Olaf many times because they shared a bed as they were growing up. You can share your bed with a brother and not fondle them. I'm sure the brother would appreciate, just back to back, man. Yeah. Like your brother's like, I don't want you touching me, brother. If it was many times, I don't know. I mean, he's an older brother. Presumably he's larger. I have no idea how that works. But, you know, that is a family where there's a lot of fondling happening that shouldn't be happening. Well, in the book, Dennis actually does describe the fondling. It was like a thing for him where he would just, it was such a slow process that Olav would be asleep. And so Dennis would just kind of like creep on him Hmm. slowly until he got what he wanted. And that's how he fondled his brother. Was what he wanted, what I think what he wanted? Yes. I don't want to say it. I don't want to say the words. (laughs) No, don't say it. Don't say the words. Then once they're in the world, we can't get them back. Yeah. And it cannot be unheard. But that was his MO. And so that was also kind of as twisted as the that part of it is like that was a little bit of a thrill for him to be able to get away with it because Olav apparently never woke up. Wow. Yeah. So that was his fondling of his brother. And I guess that's how it happened over, you know, several times when that happened because he never woke up. I would imagine that Olav Jr would probably not have put up with that had he woken up. And so with all of the sibling fondling and the crushing on many boys, um, he never acted on any of his crushes. Uh, He always kept the crushes kind of... In the family? In the family, exactly. But he kept them to himself and he knew better than at the time to try because it was criminal activity and he didn't act on it because of that. And so he just repressed everything. Something else that was really, really interesting to me is that he was extremely artistic. And we had said that he was a really amazingly talented writer, but also very, very artistic. Like he had an ear for music and an eye for art. You kind of have to wonder, like, had he not had certain experiences in his life, you know, where, where might he have gone if he had been allowed to be himself and not repress who he was? I think that a lot when we are profiling these various people of yeah. if they hadn't had this happen or that happen, you know, their lives, you could see that they would go down a different track. Like Dennis Nielsen, you know, he had a lot of gifts. He had intelligence. He was articulate. He was artistically creative, but he also had a lot of internal problems in terms of relating to other people, understanding human motivations, understanding why people behave the way that they do. I kind of have those too. I don't understand human motivation a lot. (laughs) Somebody who he was extremely detached from was his mother. He described his mother as emotional ice. Oh, that is harsh. That's a statement, dude. Emotional ice. That says a vast amount right there. She didn't really seem to have a whole lot of like interest in Dennis at all. 
I had heard a couple of different reports that said that she was actually like repulsed by him. That she was very disengaged as a parent. Like, yeah. She kind of seemed like she regretted his birth, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and who knows what that could have stemmed from? I mean, she could have very well have been hooking up with somebody else. And maybe Dennis was not Olaf Sr.'s son. Mm-hmm. And maybe it caused the initial rift within the marriage. And she blamed him for that in some way. And maybe mm-hmm. that's what it was. Or maybe she sensed something terrible lived within her son. There's entirely that possibility, too. It's interesting because each of them said similar things about the other. He said that she was emotionalized and she said that Dennis was this child who never liked to cuddle. It's like, you both sound like you're pretty damn chilly. Yeah, yeah. Each of you is kind of like hugging a cactus. When it was uh, high time for him to bolt and get the hell out of that house, he entered military school at 15 and he was like i can't wait to get the hell away from you betty dude is that the youngest that you can enter that's fucking young i do not know the answer to that question because it's scotland that we're talking about and so Mm -hmm. i'm not sure that it's the youngest age that you can enter but that Mm -hmm. was the age that he entered 15 interesting i bet there's sort of like a an academy kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, America has military schools, but I, I don't know the age that starts military school in the U.S. I don't know. Hmm. You should have that information at your fingertips. I don't, I don't have a son or a daughter to send to military school. So right. <laughs> I don't know. I have no reason to know that. No, you don't. It's true. Once he entered military school, he was surrounded by young teen Boys, which is kind of his jam, as we have talked about. He's like, this is the best place I could possibly be as a young dentist. Right. It's army. Army is the best place. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, his fantasies kind of started to evolve and they started to evolve to incorporate a very particular experience that he had with a taxi driver. His fantasy started to evolve and they evolved to incorporate a very particular experience that he had a near-death experience with an Arab taxi driver. That was post-graduation, right? Yeah, post-graduation. He's in the army. He said abducted him. Yeah, he had been out drinking with some friends and he grabbed a taxi. And according to him in his book, he said that there was a near-death experience where he was abducted. Like forced into the trunk. Yes, forced into the trunk and that he sprang from the trunk and then took the tire iron and hit the taxi driver in the head with it and then made his way back to his base and they just chalked it up to nothing. That is a near-death experience. I mean, when somebody puts you into the trunk of a car, they generally don't have it's sort of like innocent intentions towards you. Yeah, that's not a good sign. No, it's not. If you find yourself in the trunk of a car, it's bad news bears for you. It's not a surprise birthday party that they're taking you to. Most likely not. I mean, there might be the occasional person who has really like, you know, is super tone deaf with a delivery of a joke. But Mm -hmm. yeah, most of the time you're getting abducted and going to be murdered. But, you know, that happened to him and, you know, he fought his way out. But Again, with this very uh, formative experiences, and he kind of pulled this idea of that the abduction and the near-death experience and the being controlled, and he kind of started to pull some of those things into his Mm -hmm. fantasies. And in the army, 
in army. <laughs> he went to army, mother. So in 1961, uh, when he's in the army, he kind of joins the, the catering division of the army and he learns how to become a cook. He also learns how to butcher things like a person who we know from Australia who got some mad nice skills. Uh, Catherine Knight. <coughs> people need the skills. And if you're going to be dismembering bodies, you know, as our buddy Joel knows, <laughs> it's not easy work. No, it's not. Unless you are trained as a butcher and you know how things come apart and what places you should cut and how to, you know, leverage a joint apart and all those things. He was very proficient. Yeah, exactly. Very proficient. So in addition to his military career, after he left the army, he became a police officer in 1973. When he was a police officer, when he became one, this happened not long after a big rift in his family. So he had actually uh, gone to see his parents and hang out with his brother. And his brother had inadvertently kind of outed him to his family during this big argument. They were watching something on TV about gay rights and, and homosexuals. And there was a big to do in the household because everyone else was making disparaging comments about gay people. And Dennis Nilsson was standing up for gay rights. It's like, don't make me like Dennis Nilsson. I hate that. Ah, now I like him temporarily. <laughs> but he was standing up for gay rights and he's standing up because, you know, he was feeling it very personally. Mm -hmm. And at that time, his brother kind of stood up and blah, blah, blah. And he basically outed Dennis. Mm. And uh, that was a, a big rift in his family. He never actually spoke to uh, his older brother again after that. Yeah, that was, that was the end of their relationship. That's kind of intense. So he was a police officer from 1973, uh, but that didn't last all that long. No. And one of the reasons it didn't last that long was, even though he went through the training just fine, was that he was feeling a lot of tension between the duties of his role, which included enforcing the rule against homosexual acts and his own status as a homosexual man. Yeah. And one of those moments was when he came across two guys in a parked car having sex and he, you know, he should have, according to the rules of the time, arrested them mm -hmm. and he didn't. And so he realized that he wasn't able to quote unquote, perform the duties of his role. And he didn't want to, he thought it was immoral. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, imagine though, I mean, that kind of internal conflict, mm -hmm. right? Like here you are, it seemed like he liked the structure of the military and it seemed like he liked the structure of being a police officer. Just like Dahmer. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't get with you know, the worst part of his job because mm. it was so incredibly personal to him. I mean, imagine that kind of conflict. It's, I would have to say I'd leave too. Yeah. And in those, you know, traditionally very masculine roles mm -hmm. of police officer or working in the army, there is a lot of entrenched homophobia that tends to exist in organizations like that. And that makes it an even shittier place to be. And that was especially true at that time. Yeah, because in addition to homophobia, there's also the fact that it was considered a criminal act. So it's mm -hmm. not even just that people are homophobic as it is that society viewed it as, you know, illegal. Dennis worked as a security guard uh, after he stopped being a police officer, which actually many police officers do because it's a similar skill set. 
he did that between December 1973 and May 1974. And then he found work as a civil servant. And bureaucracy really seemed to fit well on Dennis. Mm -hmm. It's nice to be, you know, domineering over others, which, you know, low to mid-level bureaucrats sometimes like. (laughs) You know, he was a pretty mediocre employee. He actually found a work at a job center where his job was to find jobs for other people, specifically unskilled laborers. So he just blended into the background. He was quiet. Uh, He was just a mediocre employee. He just escaped notice. He got a couple of medium level promotions where he continued to oversee the job center. And that's where he stayed in that role until his arrest. Yeah, his last promotion was to an executive officer in 1982, which is where he was at until he was arrested. It's a pretty fancy title. It is a fancy title. I mean, I think that they gave it to him more so because he complained about not having been promoted. And they're like, fine, you can be an executive officer, Dennis Fuck, and shut up. So this takes us getting closer and closer to his first kill. So at this point, we're going to take a look at what his mindset was around this time. And you can't look at his mindset in this time without knowing that he actually had a temporary relationship. And so Nilsson entered into this relationship with this young man named David Galichin. Now, this was not a relationship of equals. And we know this because of some films, some home movies that have been released and can be seen on the internet, where Nilsson is talking to David, who is filming him. And just the amount of just general vitriol and condescension that is directed towards David from Dennis, he just is not a pleasant person to be around. He takes every opportunity to demean, insult. And David Gallatin was not a very assertive person, which of course is what attracted Dennis to him. So they moved in together. They got a dog named Bleep and they didn't really have a super close relationship. They did sleep together, but it wasn't that frequently. They both brought other people home sometimes. And they both had experiences of feeling lonely in this relationship. Yeah. In fact, David had said that they were roommates or flatmates and he described them as friends and that they were not homosexual. How interesting. He denied that there was any kind of homosexual relationship between the two of them. But, you know, I believe that they were partners and maybe David just wasn't really ready to come out and tell the world that that's, you know, who he was. I think that he was just probably still very of the mind that, you know, it was maybe not so smiled upon. So he was trying to keep it under under wraps. And it really lasted for about two years before they broke up. And Nielsen told Galchin to move out, which he did. Yeah. He like ordered him to move out. Yeah. He just had him leave. And so at that point, Nielsen kind of left to his own devices. He started to really watch a lot of TV, become kind of very political and angry about politics. He was drinking a lot more. As we know from a lot of our cases, alcohol plays a massive role in a lot of these because alcohol's primary role is to lower inhibitions. Yay! So at this point, he's just left his first major relationship. He has a couple of one night stands, mm-hmm. nothing that gave him any satisfaction. Yeah. He's just trying to stave off loneliness at this point. And it's funny that that is the case because he's this walking contradiction because he's terrified of loneliness and being alone. But the very fact of who Dennis Nelson was made him impossible to be with. 
So he was kind of his own catch 22 that, you know, he wanted what he was never going to be able to have, but he found a way to get a version of it. He wanted someone who would stay with him and never leave him and, you know, just do what he wanted and listen to him whenever he talked and acknowledge him. But he found a way to do that. That was very different indeed. Well, yeah. And that actually started a little bit before David, when he was still a police officer, because while he was a police officer, he would actually frequent gay bars and he would pick men up and he would go back to a place where they could continue to drink and sort of party privately. Mm -hmm. And when the person that he took back got to the point where they passed out, he would kind of go back to the whole fondling thing. And this is where he started to experiment with the quote unquote lifelessness of a person who's passed out. Like, you know, you take somebody who's passed out, like truly blacked out, you know, and you take their arm and you kind of raise it up and you let it go and it Mm -hmm. flops down. I mean, that's pretty much dead weight without being dead. And so he was starting to experiment with this kind of quote unquote lifelessness because when he was a police officer, he had been in the morgue and he found himself getting very excited by the limpness of a dead body. Do you mean excited in his underpants area? Downstairs excitement for Dennis. Mm-hmm. Basement level excitement. Yeah. And he he also experimented with, and it reminds me a little bit of Dennis Rader. He would cover himself in talcum powder to create that illusion of like a dead body. And he would look at himself in the mirror, but he would angle the mirror so he couldn't see his own head. And he would even sometimes not powder his hands so that they looked like a stranger's hands. So you could imagine it was a stranger's hands touching a dead body that was actually his dead body. Anyway, it's his jam. I'm not Dennis Nelson. You're not. Thank God. Thank God. How sick would that be? Oh, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do a podcast with Dennis Nielsen. That would be gross. That would be bad. Well, it kind of does explain some things like with his relationship with David. If you think about David was alive (laughs) and, you know, there was not, he wasn't getting what he needed from this person. You know, he wanted another person in the house, but then he wanted them to be completely like just lifeless, you know? So it wasn't, he was experimenting with what that felt like. And obviously a live interactive human is not going to be the right fit for Dennis Nielsen. They talk back. They're so mouthy. The live ones. They're so mouthy, the ones that talk back, right? What with their breathing and talking. (laughs) And something really interesting was after David was gone, uh, the killings began about a year and a half, a little longer than a year and a half after he was out of the house. And it does seem like Dennis Nilsson's mind frame really did kind of deteriorate in that time. Mm -hmm. He was more lonely. He was drinking a shit ton. He was sort of like, nobody likes me. I'm not lovable. That's true, though. I mean, it is true. Yeah, you are a shit stain. Yeah, you're a bit of a shit sandwich. Listeners, all of us here at Homicide Worldwide are very excited to share one of our favorite podcasts with you. It's called Nerded Through the Grapevine, and here to tell you more about it are four best friends. 
Hey everybody, I'm Dane Holland. It's a new STD, a sonic transmitted disease. <laughs> I'm Austin Shazam Pfeiffer. So it would be just a smushed mashed potato situation going on in my young adolescent crotch area. I'm Marcus Whitaker, known as I'm Electric Man. So instead of talking about how CERN is trying to open up a portal to hell and in the entire universe, I guess I'm just going to read jokes off the freaking internet. And I'm Austin Tiny Zen. Dr. Strange, he's circumcised because would you want to uncircumcised wizard? I don't think so. And if you'd like any of that to make any sense whatsoever, tune in to Nerd It Through the Grapevine, a podcast where four best friends gather weekly to talk about our favorite parts of past, present, and future nerd culture every Monday on Spotify, iTunes, and whatever your favorite app for podcast is. Come join us in the grapevine. You can find Nerdy Through the Grapevine wherever you listen to podcasts. But that takes us up to his state of mind right before his very first murder. Yes. Dennis Nielsen's murders themselves were brutal because all murders are brutal. Mm -hmm. But it's like you had said earlier when we were talking about this case, it's what he did after the murders that was really the thing that was so alarming and shocking and just like the what the fuck factor with this guy. Um, but he's he's known to have killed 12 young men and boys between 1978 and 1983. Now, those are the known victims because he had originally claimed a number higher at 15, but then during his confessions had retracted three of those confessions. So I tend to believe that it was probably 15 or, or maybe even more, but because he recanted three, they can only say that, He's known to have killed 12. That's just, you know, 12 is so much better than 15. I mean, I mean, you know, it's so much better. It's a lot of fucking people, right? Yeah. Like, holy crap. Dennis Nielsen's first kill reminds me so, so much of Jeffrey Dahmer's first kill. And it's not the first time that we've mentioned the similarities in those cases. Right. Both of them mention wanting them to stay with me as their primary motivation for this quite impulsive act. Yep. So it was an impulsive act, just like Dahmer's was an impulsive act. So Nilsson was out drinking at the Cricklewood Arms Pub, which was a place he'd picked up guys before. It and sounds like a pretty fun spot. Listen at the Cricklewood Arms. You just, should we walk down to the Cricklewood for dinner? Let's do it. That sounds great. I remember um, it, it like in my imagination, I think of it like very like dark kind of woody mm-hmm. interior, like a lot of like deep masculine colors, like like burgundies and deep dark greens and things like that. It's like been there for like 250 years. Yeah. And it smells like 250 years. There's definitely of like alcohol and smoke and dude, but good in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a legit place. It is a legit place. And it legit was a sucky place to be on 30th of December, 1978. Yes. Uh, so Nilsson um, encountered Stephen Holmes, claims that he thought he was about 
17, but Stephen Holmes was 14 at the time. And uh, Holmes had been trying to purchase booze, but being 14 had been unsuccessful. Dennis had been drinking by himself, as you do. As you do. Right. I mean, I've been there. We've all been there. Well, maybe not all of us, but I've been there. (laughs) Anyway, so he went out, wanted to go out. He'd been drinking all day. He wanted some company. He really was feeling specifically very, very lonely at that time. He really wanted company in a way that was almost a little bit of sort of a desperate, frantic feeling. Mm -hmm. Well, he had said that he celebrated Christmas alone and it was right around the new year. And Mm -hmm. so he didn't want to spend New Year's alone. No. And he sure didn't. No, he did not. So Nilsson was at the Cricklewood Arms and he meets Stephen Holmes and they they kind of hit off, have a nice conversation. And Dennis invites Stephen back to his house, says, let's just drink. You've had some trouble getting alcohol. I've got booze back at my house. I got some cool tunes on my record player. Some vinyl. Some vinyl, ye oldie times. <laughs> and so back at uh, Dennis's house, they get drunk, they fall asleep. The next morning, Dennis wakes up and he finds next to him on the bed, Stephen Holmes asleep. Now, this is a a real significant moment because at this point, he commits an act of impulsiveness that changes his life and many other people's lives forever. Yeah, definitely. Right. And, And so he sees this sleeping, this beautiful sleeping young man, and he is overwhelmed with this fear that he's going to wake up and leave. He just cannot get past this, just wanting him to stay, this desperate, lonely feeling. The New Year's coming up. Christmas was just celebrated alone. I don't want him to leave. I don't want him to leave. That same desperate feeling that Dahmer felt. I just don't want him to leave. So many people have left. So many people have left my life and I don't want this one to leave too. So your buys a necktie and Nilsson straddles Stephen Holmes and strangles him until he's unconscious. Then he fills a bucket with water and drowns this teenage boy in a bucket of water. Well, he didn't realize that he wasn't dead at first. When you are a fledgling killer Mm -hmm. and you don't always know. You're a noob. Yeah, you're a newbie. We've talked about this before. It takes a minute to strangle someone. Mm -hmm. It's not like it is on TV where it's conveniently takes like seven seconds. Yeah, and somebody's just dead and you're like, wow, the human throat's so delicate. No, I mean, yes, (laughs) it's a delicate piece of the body, but it's also designed to want to live. That's right. So he didn't know at first that Stephen Holmes hadn't actually died from the strangulation when he realized that's what had happened is when he got the bucket. Well done, Dennis. So after he has drowned Stephen Holmes, Nilsson washes his body and then put Holmes back on the bed and caressed him because, you know, he wasn't putting up a fight. He also masturbated twice over Stephen Holmes's body which is gross. He was kind of having to take stock of what he had done. There was a little bit of panic, as you would expect, but he he waited for rigor mortis to pass and not knowing what else to do, he just kind of stowed the body under his floorboards. Perfect plan, Dennis. Just stick it there. You know what? Just get a little kitty litter and just sprinkle that right on top. (laughs) Exactly. The thing that worked in his favor, and some people are probably like, well, that probably wasn't going to last long. Nope. It lasted a while. It lasted to the tune of about seven months. Holy cannoli. That that body was under the floorboards. And part of the why is that it's cold. 
And that body was pretty well preserved Mm -hmm. for the most part for a good long while. And of course, not at the seven month point, but a good while, it didn't really start the decomposition that a body might start in a warmer climate. Or it slows it down to the point where it's not so foul. Like when it happens quickly, you get the bloat and the active decay. That's right. Go listen to our decomposition episode if you really want to learn about it. There's basically the faster that happens, the stickier it's going to get like mm-hmm. really quickly because it's just more bacterial action going on and that's what's causing the smell. Yeah. So if it's kind of happening slowly, it's cold. I mean, this is December in England, right? It's not toasty warm. It's not Acapulco. It's definitely not Acapulco. No, no. it's not fucking Acapulco. No, it's very chilly. So, yeah. But there's a quote from Nielsen when he writes about this first kill and he's talking about the floorboards and, and what it was like to put Stephen under there. And this is what he says. I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there. No shit, it's because he's decomposing, asshole. Oh God. But anyway, so he's still like, we're, we're talking like a week after, I mean, obviously, you know, he did, he was down there for seven months, as you said, but the idea that he put them down there and then left him there for seven months, he came back up and down a few times. Mm-hmm. It was like taking him back, giving him a bit of a wash, putting him back down. And there comes a point obviously with decomposition where these things just aren't really possible anymore. Obviously Nielsen had a stronger stomach than most of us for for that. I think most people would tap out just at the dead body part, regardless of its freshness. He was able to tolerate some level of decomposition. Yeah. And some level of decay before he sort of tapped out and said, all right, you're going to stay under the floorboards now, buddy. I can't do anything with you anymore. He was taking the body up, washing it. And he did this with most of his victims he would kind of use it again and again. Yeah, he absolutely did. It's interesting because he wasn't having actual intimate sex with this body, but he there was a whole lot of like masturbation. There was a lot of masturbation. Yeah. And to get rid of the body after those many months had passed, he built a bonfire in his garden behind his flat, burned the body and kind of crushed it into the ground. Yeah. At this point, you know, there's not a lot really left. I mean, seven months later, you know, it's not a fresh body that is going to be a little harder to burn. He would have bonfires with some of his victims and it was not a really private area that he lived in. No. This was another situation when he lived at the 195 Melrose in London he had neighbors and he had other people who lived in the building. And it's a big city, man. If you're having a bonfire, your neighbors know about it. This right. is not like you have an estate or a property. And the kids in the neighborhood would notice it. And one thing that he would do, and I really don't understand how this never was examined or looked at or anybody was not going, wow, that's unusual. I mean, he was burning a tire on top of his victim to mask the smell of burning flesh. It's pretty clever, actually. Right. It is. So would the neighborhood kids like 
go hang out at the bonfire or some marshmallows. <laughs> hey, Mr. Nielsen, got any candy? Why do these marshmallows taste so weird? <laughs> Tastes like flesh and burning tires. <laughs> That's because of the flesh and burning tires. Flesh mallow. <laughs> but I mean, let's look just for one second before we move on back to Jeffrey Dahmer. So strangled his first victim because he didn't want them to leave, stripped the clothes from their body, masturbated over the corpse in their own different ways, kind of dismembered or, you know, disarticulated the body and then crushed them and scattered them behind their home. And that's basically what they both each did. Yeah. The MOs are surprisingly overlap in many unusual ways. It's very eerie when you think about the methods, mm-hmm. the mentality. And what I mean by that is just like the, the motivation behind not wanting somebody to, to leave and the disposal. And that's a, those are three very unique circumstances, I think. The thing about murdering is you do it one time and you either like it or you don't. And if you like it, he loved it. It scratched an itch for him, an itch that nothing else had been able to scratch. Finally, many of his fantasies kind of came to this narrow point. It's kind of like a Quentin Tarantino movie where there's all these different threads and at the end they all come together. And it was like that. You've got like the obsession with death and the sort of sexual interest in the sort of white, pale, dead looking corpse-like body. You've got the ephibophilia where it's a very strong sexual interest in mid-teen range of boys. You just got a lot of these things coming together. And of course, the skills like the knife skills. Um, he's also got police training. So he knows some parts about, you know, evasion and things like that. There's just a lot of elements that come together at this point. And now that he is over the hump of the very first experience, that's the hardest one. Yeah. There's a very long standing pattern in serial killing, where the first murder is an impulse murder, where it sort of just happens, it's spur of the moment. And then from there, it's like, oh, that was great. Let's do that again. And it was similar for Dahmer. And it really does seem to be the pattern here. But once he started, and once you get away with it. Yeah, it's like a drug. It's like a drug. It's exactly right. And you, you say you aren't going to do it again, but you just, you just are. But you do it. Yep. Yeah, you do it. 15 more times. He actually didn't think that he was going to get away with this. And he was surprised that he had gotten away with this. And so when he realized that the disposal method worked and nobody was coming to look for this guy, he was like, okay, I guess I'm free to kill. And he escalated really quickly because it was a pretty decent amount of time between his first kill of Stephen Holmes and his second murder of Kenneth Okenden, who was around the age of 23, because that happened in December of 1979. And that is often also the case. You, you do sometimes see a big gap where there is that sort of those latent socialization pieces of like, it's wrong to kill and I shouldn't have killed. I don't want to get caught and I'm never going to do it again. And wow, I was so lucky that I got away with it that time. A lot of killers report this, like after their first murder, they're obviously massively thrilled, but they're also like kind of, as you said, awed that they got away with it. But as time passes, 
it just sort of makes sense that you got away with it. And maybe like you got away with it because you're, you're pretty smart and like maybe you could try it again. You know, all of the risk starts to sort of fade away and the reward starts to kind of grow and grow. And especially after, you know, you get that period of dormancy before the urge starts to rise again, when the urge does start to rise, I think it's very easy for those risks to really fade in importance. So number two was Kenneth James Okenden. He was actually strangled while he was listening to music on mm-hmm. Dennis Nielsen's headphones. Yeah, by the cord of the headphones, of the very headphones he was listening to music with. Just kind of he used whatever was around. This this also has that slightly impulsive feel to it. I mean, the first one was, you know, the necktie that was just lying around. And mm-hmm. this was, you know, th- like you said, the literal cord of the literal headphones that he's wearing. Right. Nilsson took him out a day after he killed them. Nilsson took him out about 24 hours after he first killed him yeah from the floorboards where he keeps them and cleaned him up and dressed him but this time he sat him in a chair took photos of kenneth's corpse in various positions and this is where it kind of gets a little necrophilia so if that's not your jam you're already way in the wrong place yeah you're committed so he took him to the bedroom took his clothes off positioned him kind of spread eagle and talked to him as though he could hear. He then crossed the dead man's legs together and used the you know space between his thighs to have sex with. You're welcome, everybody. Enjoy that mental image. So eventually, Kenneth was not able to stay with us anymore because of the natural processes of life and death. And at that point, when he started to get a little too whiffy, uh, he went back down under the floorboards and... He would occasionally, like I said, before he got too sort of melty, he would come out a few times so they could sit together and watch TV, put him in fresh clothes. That was something that he did frequently would change them like a wardrobe change. Just freshen them up a little bit. Yeah. Little Febreze here. Oh, God. I mean, I don't mean to insult the dead, but like, you know, obviously once you're dead, it, it sucks what happens to your corpse, but it's also not happening to your conscious self. Being with a dead corpse, there's so many taboos that you have to cross so many like social barriers. It amazes me how people can do this so comfortably. That's the difference between, I think, the necrophilia and everybody else is that death is repulsive to most people. Well, and you certainly don't want to like have a body just kicking it with you like while you flip through the channels. Unless you're Dennis Nilsson, in which case that's exactly what you fucking want. (laughs) But I'm saying uh, somebody in... Your you eye. general person, yes, your exactly. eye might not want that. No, they don't interrupt while you're watching your favorite shows, though. That's nice. That's true. They don't try to talk to you. They don't make stupid comments. Shut the fuck up when they're meant to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that takes us through 1979. But here we are in the 80s. Oh, the 80s. And 1980 was a big year for Dennis. This is where he did the like majority of his killing. And so the dates, just to give you a sense of the spread of of the killings, May, August, September, October, November, and then November or possibly December for number eight. And when we refer to people as numbers, his fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth victim, as well as his ninth, tenth, and eleventh victim have all been unidentified. This is the part where you can answer the question, how did he get away with this? One of the reasons that 
he did get away with it and why these people are unidentified is because of who they were and their standing in society at the time. If you were a police officer at that time, you're not particularly interested in investigating crimes against homosexuals or homeless people. Yeah, right. It was still considered, even if it was at this point, quote unquote, legalized, people are still judging it and they're still being dicks about it. And they aren't prioritizing a gay person who's missing or potentially murdered as much as they're going to prioritize somebody who say is like, you know, a a straight man or, you know, a married man or married woman, and they're not going to show them the same kind of dignity and respect that they're going to show these other people. And we still see this today. If a little blonde white girl goes missing, the nation comes to a fucking stop. If a little black girl goes missing, she's just another number and nobody gives a shit. Like it still happens today. It's just different things and different people and different, you know, whatever, but you know, it still happens. And, you know, gay people who are listening to this are saying, yeah, and it's still happening to us today. And they're absolutely right. Definitely. Things are not as equal as they should be. And even though I hope that eventually we will get there, we've come a long way where we are today, but we're not anywhere near where we need to be. Um, And we certainly weren't anywhere near we needed to be in the late 70s and early 80s with this. So 1980, a very busy year. And a couple of interesting elements to a couple of the murders. One of them in particular, he felt like he was almost aiding them in a mercy death. That was his seventh victim strangled to death as he slept. Mm -hmm. And Dennis Nilsson later noted that while he was being strangled, his legs kind of moved in this like cycling motion. Yeah. Which is kind of odd. I guess it's just like a death response. I've never heard of that before. I'd never heard of that either. He had also said about that particular victim that he felt that his victim's life had been one of long suffering and that it had been as easy as taking candy from a baby when he described that murder. Fucking awful thing to say. Yeah. So... To go back a little bit, though, in 1980, the two victims who were identified were his third and fourth victim who were murdered in May and August, respectively. That was Brandon Duffy, who was 16. He strangled him as well. He did the similar follow up with drowning him, but this time he drowned him in the kitchen sink. Way to mix it up. Interestingly enough, after that happened, he bathed the body, but this time Dennis Nielsen bathed with the body. I mean, did he have a big tub? I don't know that that was the case. I think he just made it work. Because England's not known for its giant tubs. I wouldn't think in 1980 that there would be like, you know, a luxurious kind of jacuzzi tub. In like your shitty apartment in London. Yeah, I don't. I'm, yeah, that doesn't fit. I'm not seeing that as, no. as how it was. I, I imagine like a, a shitty fiberglass shallow tub. And the advantage obviously to bathing somebody is that when you immerse them in hot water, the body will warm up and it will feel alive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's about as far as we need to go with that. Yes. Train of thought. He, he kept this particular victim Martin for about two days before putting him underneath the floorboards. This was where, this is where he's a little Gacy-esque mm-hmm. to me with mm-hmm. how, the way he disposed of and hid the bodies within the house, not the burning part, but hiding the bodies within the house. Mm-hmm. It just, it read a little Gacy to me. And that, that's really the only, well, the, I guess that's not the only thing. There's some similarities there. Yeah, he's, he's got a little bit of Gacy in him too. Mm-hmm. They're wanting to keep them close. 
Uh, obviously, you know, there's the aspect of them both being homosexual, but I think that's, you know, less important than some other aspects of the case for sure. Yeah. Well, he's sort of like if Dahmer and Gacy had had a baby, it would have been Dennis Nielsen. So the next victim that we know the identity of is his fourth victim, and that's William David Sutherland. And he was 26 years old. He was a male prostitute, but he actually did have a child of his own. So it's not known as to whether or not he was actually a gay man or if he just paid the bills by being a male prostitute. But one way or another, his uh, path crossed, unfortunately, with Dennis Nielsen's and Dennis Nielsen murdered him by strangling him. And he wasn't done. This is, you know, May and August. He had those two murders that we know the names of. But September, he kills again, unidentified man. October, he kills again, unidentified. November, unidentified. And then either November or December, again, another unidentified man. It's just, it's baffling to me, the escalation here, because that's just 1980. He jumped right in in 1981 and in the very beginning of January killed his ninth victim, um, who was approximately 18 years old. Dennis Nielsen had described him as a quote unquote blue eyed Scott. That sounds lovely. Right. (laughs) And so this man remains unidentified. February, another unidentified victim. April, another unidentified victim. And and all of these men, um, with the exception of the blue-eyed Scott that I just mentioned, were thought to be somewhere in their early 20s. And it cannot be emphasized enough how important alcohol was in this. Mm-hmm. Alcohol was, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love alcohol. Alcohol was the <laughs> lure. I mean, it was so often the lure. It was just like people who didn't have a lot of money, come back to my place and we'll go drinking. All right, well, this guy's kind of weird, but he's going to give me some free booze. All right, fair enough. And he would get people hammered. The guy could drink as well. He was a big drinker. Uh I get the strong impression that he had kind of a very good tolerance for alcohol and he could drink more than other people because there's a lot of like, they passed out, but I was still awake. As Keita said, he started right at the start of the year. It was like the 4th of January when he killed in 1981, but then again in February and then again in April and then again in September. He was so busy and had to like just continue to feed this habit that he had formed, this terrible habit. It was an odd break that he took because after the April murder, he took off till September. So he took off a a good couple of months, whereas he had just been doing a murder a month up to this point for several months. His next victim in 1981 is Malcolm Stanley Barlow, who was about 23 years old. And he was the final victim to be murdered at the 195 Melrose Avenue apartment in London. It's still 12 people, though. Yeah, that was in September. This one was really like, they're all obviously sad, but this one was kind of even sadder to me because he was a, a mentally ill boy who had been orphaned. And Dennis Nielsen had actually seen him the day prior and he was like he needed some medical attention. And so Dennis Nielsen had made sure that he got this medical attention and Malcolm had come back by the apartment to say thank you. And oh, that was a mistake. Yeah, it was just how sad. I mean, the circumstances around that, like, why would you not go back and thank the person who saved your life? I mean, really? Of course. Right. Because you're a decent person. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, well, the person who saved me is now going to murder me. 
God, can you imagine? That's exceedingly fucked up. Isn't it? And if you had just honestly not given a shit and moved on like every other asshole, then he would have still be alive. Yeah. But because, you know, he was nice. No good deed goes unpunished. The interesting thing about this murder, Malcolm Stanley Barlow, age 23, that happened, the last murder, as Keita said, at this Melrose Avenue address, is that the room under the floorboards is running out. There's so many dead people down there now that it's just running out. Malcolm Barlow's body is actually put in a kitchen cupboard because there isn't any more room under the floorboards by this time. There's already 11 people there. And at that point, it turned out that this worked for him because the landlord of the property on Melrose Avenue was going to renovate it and he needed access to Nielsen's apartment. So he offered him a thousand pounds to move out. And that's not a small amount of money, especially at that time. And so he accepted it and moved to a new place. Something that was really interesting when he moved out of the Melrose Street address was that he had already dismembered several victims and he had over the course of, you know, all this time had had a total of three bonfires where he was disposing of some of the victims and some of their things. And so when he was getting rid of certain body parts, because that floorboard is only going to be able to like open up so much, right? He had to get rid of some of them. And so there were several victims who he had sort of scattered around his garden on Melrose and included one of the victim's hands, put kind of like in a bush area. And he realized that he had almost forgotten about these hands when he was moving out. And then he remembered them. Got to remember everything, even the hands that you left in the bush. Yeah, I mean, this, but this is just to like show where he was at, you know, I mean, he was disposing of like internal organs, kind of like tossing them over the fence. And I, I would guess that probably like, you know, some neighborhood cats were pretty happy about that. You know, maybe a pack of wild dogs got a hold of some things, you know, the, his disposal methods weren't necessarily stupid. They were just really disgusting. And so, yeah, I mean, when you look at a pile of like rotting something on the ground, you just are going to assume that some poor creature met its end there. And it's not going to look exactly like a pile of human intestines or a a human spleen or a human liver. It's going to look like it's been, you know, taken apart. Now he's moving. He's taken his thousand pounds and he has found a place over at Cranley Gardens, which is... The plumbing incident house that was mentioned before. Yes. And this is the beginning of Dennis Nielsen's end. Ah, yes. Cranley Gardens. So the first murder that took place in the Cranley Gardens house was John Peter Howlett, who's 23. He was strangled as he slept, which seems to be the way of things if you are a friend of Dennis Nielsen's. He also ended up having to drown Howlett by holding his head underwater in the bathtub. And that took five minutes for the man to die. He then dismembered Howlett's body. Now, this is his new disposal method. It's not burning or dismembering and putting under the floorboards. He decides that he's going to try to flush pieces of flesh and internal organs down the loo. Yeah, because he no longer has access to a garden. Or a nice floorboards. Right. This apartment is a converted attic. 
Exactly. And so from him downwards is just people. So like if you put someone on his floorboards, they're going to start leaking in 48 hours into mm-hmm. the, and the place before. They're also going to notice like a sleeping bag going thump, 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 thump down the stairs. They're going to hear that. That's, that's going to raise a red flag. <laughs> so he starts to dissect this, flushing these pieces. The, the large bones he has to actually throw out with the rubbish. On rubbish day, you know? Oh, God. For us, that's Thursday. Yeah. For me, that's Wednesday. He had a friend coming over, so he really had to hurry with this dismemberment. So inconvenient when you're in the middle of dismembering a body and you get a friend. Oh, so annoying. The flushing process took longer than he thought. So he ended up boiling some of the body in his kitchen. That was the head, the hands, and the feet. Yes. And actually, he had bought that stockpot for his very first victim, Because his initial thought was that he was going to dismember him, but he couldn't bring himself to do it at that time. Nice. Hang on to a good stock pot. You know, they always come in handy. If it's not soup, it's going to be a body. As Kita said, he hurled some of the parts over the back garden fence. It was like like an area over the fence where there's like a waste area where people just chuck stuff. And so what else are you going to throw in your garbage, but things that you don't want, like the parts of the bodies that you killed? Like a liver from this guy. Exactly. He also would put some of the parts into a bag that he uh, sprinkled inside with salt and he would store those in a tea chest. Just part of the decor in the home. Yeah, it just adds a little ambiance. Like literally in his home, in a chest was body parts Mm. of people who he had brined. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Takahiro's like, you know, they go with everything. Oh my God, Dennis. What the fuck, man? I know, right? Seriously. But he's not done. He's still got a couple more people to kill. In September, so the the first one in that new address happened in March of 1982. September of that same year, Archibald Graham Allen. Archie Allen, 27, father of one. He was strangled as he sat eating an omelet that Dennis Nielsen had made him. You sit down to a nice meal and someone fucking strangles you. That's a dick move. It's a dick move. It's like, you know, there's this like guest right or, you know, honoring your guests. And right. it's like the exact opposite of that. It's just offensive. But anyway, <laughs> so he ended up dissecting Archibald Allen, whose body was actually only able to be identified from dental records because he was like taken apart. They found tiny little pieces of him blocking the drains a little later when the plumbing incident happened. <sighs> The very last murder that we know about for sure happened very early in 1983, which takes us up to the time when the plumbing incident occurs. So this happens on actually Australia Day, 1983. Hmm. Um, Yes, the 26th of uh, January, 1983. Stephen Neil Sinclair, who was just 20 years old, was Dennis Nilsson's final victim. He had a pretty troubled life. So, of course, that brought him right into Nilsson's crosshairs and his habit of looking for desperate people who need things. Because who else would you prey on but people who've had shitty lives? Yeah. So Sinclair was a heroin addict and he also self-harmed. And Nilsson did his thing where he plied him with alcohol. He actually had encouraged him to inject heroin. So Stephen Sinclair was really out of it. Nilsson strangled him to death. The tea chest came in handy yet again because... Nilsson put Stephen Sinclair's head, 
his upper torso, which means the torso was severed. That's hard work. And his arms were in the tea chest, in the fucking living room. Then the lower torso and his legs were underneath the bathtub. Dude. I know. Nilsson later talked about what it was like during the killing. And he talked about this killing trance and that he actually had multiple occasions where he had kind of snapped out of this trance and had released men who he had actually previously intended to kill. Yeah. So there were some who actually got away because he let them go. Yeah, there were. There was a handful of men who got away. One of them was named Andrew Ho. He was a man who Dennis Nielsen had taken back with him. There was like some discrepancy about what exactly the intent was there. Like, was it going to be like sexy times or what? But regardless, uh, Dennis Nielsen did try strangulation with Andrew, but he was able to get away and he went to the cops. And of course, because being a gay man, he didn't want to press charges and he didn't want to admit that he had solicited Dennis Nielsen for anything. And so nothing ever happened with that case. It was just kind of like documented. Okay. Like there is like a domestic issue between these two men and moving on is kind of how it was treated. So that happened in 1979. And about a year later, a man named Douglas Stewart said that Dennis Nielsen had attacked him, that he had been at Dennis Nielsen's home that he'd fallen asleep in an armchair and he had kind of awoken to Dennis Nielsen had tied up his feet and was putting a tie around his neck. That's never good. Yeah. And so again, he called the police and they once again chalked it up to that there was a domestic dispute between two gay men. They had noticed that the victim had been drinking and so they kind of just seemed like, oh, well, like, discredited because of being gay and having been drinking. Mm -hmm. And then in November of 1981, November 23rd, does that ring a bell? Anybody? November 23rd. Dennis Nielsen's birthday, baby. Happy birthday, Dennis. You know what you do on your birthday? You treat yourself. And so he, Dennis Nielsen, took a 19-year-old by the name of Paul Nobbs back to his house where they drank together. Supposedly they went to bed and Nobbs says that he woke up around 2.30 in the morning with a really terrible headache. He said that he went to go look in the mirror and that he saw a really big red mark across his throat and his eyes were completely bloodshot and that he just looked really bad. <laughs> his face looked like it had been bruised. Red flag. Yeah, and he was like, wow, like, what the hell happened to me? And so when he and Dennis Nielsen had woken up the following morning, apparently Dennis Nielsen said to him that he looked terrible and he said, oh, you should go see a doctor. So Paul Nobbs goes and he sees a doctor. He's in the university, right? He's 19. Mm -hmm. So he goes to the infirmary and the doctor says that this looks like it's consistent with somebody trying to strangle him. Yeah, that's what like red welts across your throat's going to look like. Yeah, exactly. But he did not believe what the doctor said. And so he did not report this incident. That's just fucked up. Right? What do doctors know? Clearly nothing. They don't know what, no, what that looks like. No. To go back to some of the victims, uh, John Howlett, who you talked about, and that was a successful murder. Yeah, he did not escape. 
the one of the very last ones was Carl Stodder, mm-hmm. who was one of the attempted murders. He was not murdered, but he had an awful time with Dennis Nelson, like really <sighs> traumatic. And when you look at his interviews, you can see that he's still deeply traumatized about it. Basically what happened with him, he was sort of multiple times kind of like drowned and then brought back by Dennis Nielsen. And Bleep the dog apparently jumped up and tried to like lick Carl Stodder's face. Because dogs are amazing. She seemed to like kind of sense that he was alive. Yeah, exactly, right? And there was this whole thing about Nilsson told him that he'd gotten his throat caught in the zipper of a sleeping bag. Carl Stodder woke up and was feeling like he had, you know, had this weird nightmare. And later he remembered that he had been strangled. It was a very strange case. So as we mentioned right at the start, it was really plumbing that did Dennis in. So there were uh, five other people who lived in that building, five other tenants at 23 Cranley Gardens. They didn't really know Dennis. And that first week of February, remember, he committed his last murder and all the flushings that were involved thereby on January the 26th. And now we're in very early February. So one of those tenants noticed that the toilet downstairs is just not flushing. The water's just not going anywhere. He tries to clean the blockage. He pours like, you know, like liquid plumber and all that crap down the toilet. Nothing happens. And some of the other toilets in other people's apartments are doing the same thing. Nielsen's not having any problems. (laughs) Uh, The plumber arrives. His tools didn't seem to do the job. So he calls in a specialist who, who looks... It drains a lot more, apparently. And at that point, Nielsen was becoming aware of the fact that the drains were being investigated. He was aware of the fact that they were most likely blocked because of all the body parts flushing down. Because flushing people down the drain doesn't work. That's right. It doesn't work so well. No. When you go into most public places, what does it say in the ladies' room? Don't flush like tampons, pads, or body parts. Body parts. Yes. No, it's toilet paper only, people. Toilet paper only, people. That's all that goes down the toilet. Yeah. And so he realized that if he didn't act quickly, that people were going to find out because, you know, the body parts stuck in the drains. He ended up stuffing the parts of Sinclair's body from that murder he just committed that had not yet been flushed stuffing them into plastic bags <sighs> along with the, the head, which he had partly boiled. And then he locked those remains in his closet and he stopped flushing the toilet. So he's kind of aware of it. Two days later, there was a company again who was called in to examine uh, the blockage. They were called Dino Rod. So Dino Rod arrives and they realize that this is a blockage that's actually happening underground. It's not happening in the building. It's under the building. And so this technician, his name is Michael Catran. He arrives and he goes down into a manhole that's kind of on the side of the building. It smells like ass. Literally. Literal ass. Literally somebody's decomposing ass. It's a smell that he's never really smelled before, but he's he has some suspicions about what it is and he reports it to his supervisor. He'd kind of gotten there later in the day. It was dark. And so he and his supervisor say, well, let's just wait and we'll take another look tomorrow morning. So before Katran left the building, Nielsen had kind of found him and chatted with him about the source of whatever the blockage was. Michael Katran had remarked to Dennis Nielsen about how similar 
it appeared to human flesh. And to which Nielsen replied, it looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. Really? Okay. Okay. First of all, who flushes Kentucky Fried Chicken down the fucking toilet? Nobody. It's fucking finger licking good. It's finger licking good. You eat it and then you throw the bones out. Who's going to be like, well, this doesn't really taste so good. If it doesn't taste good, you know what you do? Throw it away. Put it in the trash. Yeah. Nobody flushes Kentucky Fried Chicken down the toilet, Dennis. No. Use your fucking brain. Anyway. So the next day, 730, Michael Cotran turns up with his boss to the Cranley Gardens apartment. And by that point... The drain had miraculously been cleared. What? How in the world could that have happened? It just miraculously happened. I mean, thank goodness. They must have fixed the problem. Right. I mean, whoo, I know. Like, wipe your brow. We're done. Wow. No. And now, fortunately, because they're not dumbasses, they were now very (laughs) suspicious, right? And Like, where did all the Kentucky Fried Chicken go? (laughs) Michael Catran looks a little bit more closely in a couple of drains, and he discovers a few scraps of flesh and four small bones in a pipe that leads from the drain that links to the pipes that go to the top flat of the house in who lives Dennis Dennis Nielsen right in the attic. Right. Exactly. And now (gasps) these guys aren't really like CSI London, but the bones (laughs) look a little bit like a human hand, but they, they kind of are at the same time. Yeah, they kind of are at the same time because they've seen some shit, right? Yeah. And so at this point, they're like, look, this ain't great. So they call the police and then it all blows open. The police are like, yeah, they look a little further. They discover more bones, more scraps. And it looks to them like human flesh, possibly animal flesh. So they take these little bits of scraps. They take them to a pathologist named David Bowen. And he says this is human. One piece of flesh in particular looked like it came from a human neck and he said it had on it what looked like a ligature mark. That's a hard one to talk your way out of, Dennis. So the police turn up. They, you know, work out that the top flat belongs to Dennis Nilsson. Upstairs, knock, knock, knock. He opens the door. There's a little bit of smell that comes out. And the detective introduces himself and his colleagues who were there, explains that they have discovered human remains and that's what's been causing the blockage. And Dennis Nielsen feigns shock and surprise, says, good grief, how awful. Yeah. And then says, where did it come from? And I love the response of the detective. Don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? You have to finish up with like, bloody good governor. There we go, Britain. We've offended everybody. That is my best attempt at an English accent. And I'm so sorry. At this point, Nielsen realizes that the jig is up. So he's kind of calm. He says, well, the rest of the body can be found in two plastic bags in the nearby cupboard. And sure enough, a terrible smell was coming from those bags. The officers didn't open the cupboard and they asked him if there were any other body parts. And he said, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest, but not here at the police station. So they arrested him on suspicion of murder. He was taken to the police station. While he was driving there, one of the police asked him whether the body parts in his apartment 
belonged to one person or to two people. And he's kind of staring out the window of the police car and he says, 15 or 16 since 1978. Which really, he could have just said three people because they were only talking about Cranley Gardens. Now, this is where we find out how much of a narcissist Dennis Nilsson really is. Yeah. The notoriety is so important to him. Mm-hmm. Like if he's going to be famous, he wants to be the most famous. If he's going to kill people, he wants to kill the most people. Like he loves that people talk about him. He loves that he's reviled because any attention is good attention when you're a narcissist, even negative attention. Oh, 100%. I don't think he wants to hide it at this point, but he has a long interview with the police on the 10th of February, 1983. And he confesses everything. He confessed about the further human remains and the tea chest. He confessed about the other house, the drawer in his bedroom, under the bathtub, all the places that he has stowed dismembered body parts. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. So this story really broke open and the public was, of course, horrified, horrified that this could be happening right in their midst, that this person's living right next to them. And I mean, they're going to have a little bit of time to catch their breath. And then they're going to have Fred and Rosemary West on their front pages of their newspapers as well. (laughs) Soon enough. While Dennis Nielsen had confessed to all of this, his confession was like around 30 hours and it went close to like the length of a week. But at the same time, you know, this hero of a plumber who made the initial discovery, he went ahead and let the newspapers know about the ongoing search for human remains at Cranley Gardens. So by like February 11th, you know, reporters, of course, were like just savages. And so they had basically obtained photographs from Nielsen's mother about who was in this apartment and who was the suspect. So these tabloids got a hold of this real quick. Which kind of thrilled him. He loved to read about himself. He loved to see that he was in the newspapers. And you know, oddly enough, in interviews that I've seen with the plumber, he kind of loves himself a little (laughs) bit too. His statement about this is that he's the reason that this case was broken open. And I'm like, well, actually, like, maybe like, let's take it back just a little bit, like dial it down, bro, because Mm -hmm. it's actually Dennis Nielsen because he was the dumbass who flushed the shit down the toilet to begin with. You just happen to have a job. Right. Would no other technician or plumber have noticed the stank of human decomposition? You have some special observation power that nobody else has. I think it's that. He has observation powers. Mm. Mm -hmm. I doubt that. (laughs) So after his arrest, Nielsen did assist in helping to find various parts of missing people, Mm -hmm. various pieces and, you know, to get them assembled into people like they did with Stephen Sinclair. Yeah. So his lower half was in a bag in the bathroom, as we said, kind of stuffed under the bathtub. And then they kind of had to figure out which torso was his, which arms were his, which legs were his and kind of put it all together. Just kind of grim. He took the police back to the Melrose Avenue apartment where he had, you know, killed so many people, buried so many people. Those merry community bonfires with the children dancing around. Oh, such a nice community involvement. Yeah. Like rings of smoke through the trees. While he 
had done these bonfires, you know, he had raked the remains because they broke down, right? You know, and so he raked these remains into the earth. There was one bonfire that had kind of left remnants of a skull or a pretty good amount of it still intact. And so he crushed the skull and then kind of like pulverized it and then just raked it all in. Yeah. I mean, you throw a little compost on that. It's pretty hard to detect. Yeah. And you see the photos of the forensic investigation here and, you know, they had to dig down like a couple of feet Mm -hmm. and take all of this soil back to labs to be, you know, sifted, processed, every little tiny piece of bone had to be found. It reminds me so much of the Fred West case where they had to do the same thing. They just kind of just like excavated down to get all the yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. So he was charged with six counts of murder and two charges of attempted murder. Eventually in that trial, there was a little bit of like, is he competent? Is he insane? Especially with all the necrophiliac stuff, it was very, you know, easy to try to paint that insanity plea, but it ended up that he was found to be in full awareness and have all of his capacities, mental capacities, and that he should, you know, be found guilty if indeed that's the way it goes. And that is, of course, the way that it went because it was so clear that he had done it. All of the evidence, you know, he had his confession. They had all the physical evidence. So Dennis Nilsson was convicted of six murders and two attempted murders. Obviously, we know he committed more. And he was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, which is kind of a special circumstance in the UK because the no possibility of parole doesn't come up very often. But it's a moot point because he died in prison. Yes, he did. Agonizingly, by the way, if you want to put a little smile on your dial. Exactly. And honestly, the trial itself was really not all that interesting up to that verdict. I mean, you can kind of go back and read a little bit about it, but it really wasn't. I mean, they they kind of listlessly tried for like diminished capacity, but then ultimately they were like, yeah, no. And they convicted. And like you said, that that sentence is really saved for the most heinous of crimes. You hear life in prison, but, you know, pretty much they're going to get out in 25 years. And for him, there was just no out. They were like, you've got to stay in forever. Yeah. You're not a safe person to be in the community and you never will be. No, he was really not. So after, you know, he died and, you know, there's obviously this big legacy of this horrific thing that happened. The British authorities have tried to prevent the publication of this huge memoir that he wrote called A History of a Drowning Boy, Papers from a Prisoner, which is the autobiography that he wrote that we've referenced at some points here. Thousands of pages. And not a bad read. I didn't actually physically, I listened to it on audiobook, but either way, not a bad, not a bad listen. He's very self-aware. He loves to analyze himself as a serial killer, kind of the way that BTK loved to analyze himself too, of like, oh, this is, this is what I am and this is how I developed. And these are my influences growing up that made me what I am. But he kind of had that, has that sort of like narcissistic masturbatory way about him. Yeah. But, you know, he really identifies that first murder as the, obviously the before and after, like it was the beginning. He says, it was the beginning of the end of my life as I had known it. Yeah. I had started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. I thought that the part of his statement of death and possession was really, really interesting because that is so Domery. Isn't it? it the having and mm-hmm. the keeping. Yes, the having, the keeping, the 
just the possession, that kind of just very in line way of thinking as far as what we know about Jeffrey Dahmer. Dennis Nielsen was also adamant that the decision to kill was not made right until moments before, which goes back to what you were saying. It was extremely spontaneous. But he also had stressed to the investigators that he had never actually penetrated his victims after they were dead. He said in his own words, quote, that his victims were too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex, end quote. But not so beautiful that they were not worth killing. Commonplace dismemberment, commonplace burial under floorboards, commonplace throwing a burning tire over their beautiful body. Pick a fucking lane, Dennis. I know, Dennis, choose one. Choose one. I know. It's like, it's this way of painting everything to make himself look like he's kind of elevated and above it all and different. And this isn't just something like elemental and disgusting that it's somehow almost like clean and poetic like no dude you don't get to have it that way Mm -mm, that's Mm -mm. that's not how this goes dennis no to go back to his death a little bit he died in may of 2018 he'd been complaining of severe stomach pains and was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm yay i know right there is some justice in this world and so apparently It had been, quote unquote, repaired. But after the repair, Dennis Nielsen suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. And he died on the 12th of May. In agonizing pain. Yeah. His autopsy was basically like, you know, quick and dirty. They did it because they had to. Did they care that he was dead? Not really. Bitch is dead. Sign. Yeah. Well, his cause of death was ruled as a pulmonary embolism and a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. Nielsen's body was cremated in the lovely month of June of 2018. When he had his service, there were only five mourners. There weren't any family members present, but three of the attendees were prison officers. Really interesting. What if anybody crapped on his grave? I will say that his ashes were handed over to his family, even though they didn't attend. I guess we'll just put him over here on the shelf. Do you have any fun facts? I have some fun facts. Hit me with your fun facts. All right. I think I will do that. So several items confiscated from Nielsen's Cranley Garden address, which had been introduced as evidence in his trial, are on display in New Scotland Yard's Crime Museum. We are so going there. I know. On our Scotland tour. Obviously, that's not in Scotland. Scotland Yard is actually in London. But when we go on our tour to the UK, we'll take a little. All of it. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it all. But some of these exhibits include the stove upon which Nielsen had boiled the heads of his final (gasps) three victims, the knives that he had used to dissect several of his victims' bodies, the headphones that he had used to strangle... Ockenden. Oh, shit. Yes. And the ligature he had fashioned to strangle his last victim. Wow. And the bath from his Cranley Gardens address in which he drowned Howlett. Oh, with, where he put the legs in the half, the lower torso underneath. Yep. That's a huge display. That's a pretty big display. That's and a some lot of things. Serious, like, it's not just like, you know, a ring that he owned when he was 12. It's like, these were the actual things. Holy well, crap. right. Exactly. Stephen Holmes, he was on 
the unidentified list for quite some time. But when they finally did identify him, he was found to be born in Hampstead to Irish parents. He was, in fact, a heterosexual male. He was popular and he enjoyed football and rock and roll. And when he had disappeared, it was on his way home from a concert that he had apparently gone to right before he had gone into the pub where he met Dennis Nielsen. That was his first problem, meeting Dennis Nielsen. Yeah. In his story, his mother had actually passed away before she learned what happened to her son, but his father was still alive when the identification was made. Was he suspected to be was to be one of the victims, but he was like later ID'd as being one of them? I think he had gone missing, but I don't think that he was necessarily connected because, you know. I don't know if I would want to know, you know, part of it is like he's missing. We don't know where he is. Maybe he has a new life. Maybe he like... Maybe he was hiking and he slipped down a ravine. I'm not sure I would want to know. You kinda, I'm, I, I'm kind of, well, I'm in two camps on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Nielsen in protest to having to wear a prison uniform because what a fucking diva. I know. He's such a princess. He's such, was a, such little, a princess. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. before the embolism. Before the death. Before death. <laughs> so he protested having to wear a uniform um, because he... <laughs> He interpreted it to be a breach of prison rules. When he protested against this, he would take his contents of his chamber pot and throw it out of his cell. <gasps> and it hit several prison officials. And oh, they don't like they having don't like your shit that thrown at, them. at all. No. And so when this happened, it resulted in him being found guilty on August 9th of assaulting a prison officer and subsequently spending 56 days in solitary confinement. I can't imagine anything worse for Dennis Nilsson than solitary right? confinement. Because you can't talk to anybody. No one can admire how smart you are or how clever you are or how many awesome murders you committed or how like you're the best murderer ever. Fucking asshole. Yeah. Two for you. Solitary (laughs) confinement. Yeah. To hell with you. Yeah. At least two of the men who survived Dennis Nielsen's attempted murders recalled him. This is separately, by the way, recalled him drunkenly muttering to himself about consulting the quote unquote, the professor with regards to whether they could permanently stay with him just minutes (gasps) before they were attacked. How fucked up is that? consulting the professor is that his alter ego i don't know isn't that weird wow yeah don't i wish that that had been expanded more upon (gasps) and final fun fact which i've been just waiting this whole episode to say (laughs) june of 1978 jeffrey dahmer kills his first victim december of 1978 nielsen kills his first victim (gasps) Both of their first victims were named Stephen, and each of the men's last names began with H. Dude, it's so weird. The timing, the M.O., like both of them being gay. But in a time where it wasn't accepted the way we're moving toward acceptance now. That's right. You know, and the way that Lionel Dahmer was so okay with, you know, the, all the murders and all that that we've talked about before, but he couldn't accept the, his his son's, you know, preference and, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's like, okay, well, all of these things, like you can't accept this. Like imagine if Jeffrey Dahmer hadn't been repressed that way, you know, he was very, he was also a very intelligent person and he Mm -hmm. could have easily gone down like a, you know, 
done something with dissection and and been a scientist. You know, if Dennis Nielsen had been able to be himself and not been repressed, he was artistic and had a great musical ear. Like who, Mm -hmm. who knows where either of these guys would have gone, but instead, you know, they went this way. That's right. And, you know, watching Dennis Nielsen in his home videos, watching him use disparaging terms for a gay person towards his gay male partner there's this like a sort of underlying level of you know self-hatred there or something it's just so sad and awful some human predators ambush their prey patiently waiting for the perfect opportunity others hunt with stealth easing open patio doors unlatching basement windows under cover of night. Then there are predators who use camouflage to blend in seamlessly with the rest of the shuffling gray masses. That's you and I, in case that wasn't clear. They hunt in the open. Maybe that guy standing next to me in the elevator or that dude who stood behind you in the line at the supermarket. Surely the best disguise is to hide in plain sight, allowing you to get up close and very personal with your prey. A bland, ordinary, unremarkable exterior is the best camouflage. And in this era of huge cities and melting pot societies, that makes you as noteworthy as a trash can. When you're looking for a monster, you don't look for a gangly, low-level bureaucrat who likes a pint of ale and listening to music, who likes dogs, who's intelligent and articulate, who has a clean apartment, who can cook a good meal. But of course, nobody was looking for a serial killer because at the time when Nilsson was preying on teenage boys and young gay men in his neighborhood, the disappearance of a gay man was not perceived to be a problem. The police lost interest once the word homosexual appeared. Add the word homeless in there, and Nilsson was practically performing a public service in the minds of some. Dennis Nilsson's veneer of normalcy was convincing because, in part, he was normal. He lived a shockingly normal life, to the outside observer. But Nilsson's inner world was anything but normal. Occasionally, others could see hints of a strange interior. He didn't form relationships easily. He was at ease with machines, not people. In his few intimate relationships, he was dominating, controlling, verbally abusive. He took up all the room. He placed himself at the center of everything. Even in prison, in every interview, every interaction, he sought to dominate to place himself above, to look down. For some of us, the motive of power and control seems so abstract. I have enough trouble controlling myself and the details of my own life. Controlling others seems beyond exhausting. The payoff for Nilsson, much like Dahmer, is actually disarmingly poignant. They didn't want people to leave them. Nilsson knew he couldn't compel his victims to stay, but you can't leave if you have no will to do so, and the will departs the body with the last breath, as Dennis Nilsson well knew. You've been listening to Homicide Worldwide.
And so with all of the sibling fondling, it's, I got to say that again. I can't, yeah, you I can't laugh when I say that. Yeah, it's good times. And so with all of the fondling of his siblings, um, <laughs> I, I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> I think we should keep it. I like it. It's just too funny. It's just awful. It's like he's the worst. He's <laughs> so shitty. Okay. Okay. Cool. Fucking take three on that. All right. Dino Rod. If I ever have another partner of the male variety, that's what I'm gonna call his penis. <laughs> oh, gross. Um, so because it's gonna go into your poop hole. Yeah. Gross. No, 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 no. It's okay. not going to go into I just want to make sure that we're on the no. same page. 